Morning, everybody. Morning. Wonderful to be with you today. I noticed as I walked in this morning and began having conversations with you that some of you are very droopy-eyed from a late-night football game last night in which the Buckeyes crashed and burned. I apologize for that. But, hey, I mean, for those of you football fans out there today, the Steelers have the Patriots this afternoon, so it's going to get much better. Don't worry about it. Oh, come on. And the World Series starts this week. That's cool, right? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be together. We thank you for uh, the ministry of Converge, that we get to be part of a network of churches that cares deeply about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people in our communities, with people in our nation, and even people worldwide. Lord, I pray that as we continue to buy into the vision of strengthening churches, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us, your people, a sense of urgency for the lost around us, Lord, that you would give us a sense of seriousness about our own walk with you. And God, that you would receive much glory as people grow in depth and breadth and faithfulness to you. Father, we pray now as we turn to your word that we would hear the description, that we would heed the warning, and that we would embrace the encouragement that it offers. In Jesus' name, amen. Anyone who's ever lived in a major city knows that public transportation is a key component to a quality of life in that city. And so after moving to a big city, people will often spend uh, a handful of days trying to figure out the map and the structure of the buses and the trains. And those days are usually filled with confusion, mistakes. Wasted time as you learn the train system, as you try to figure out the layout of the stations that you go to. And as you make sure that you are going on the right train, on the right track, in the right direction. Now, it doesn't sound all that complicated. But when you are looking at two trains on parallel tracks and you are standing between them, And they look like they've come from the same place and they look like they're going the same place. And one is marked eastbound and the other one is marked north or westbound. But you are trying to go northbound and you know you have to take one of those trains to get there. It can get fairly confusing because the choice that you're going to make has consequences. The choice that you're going to make is either going to lead you closer to your destination or it's going to lead you farther and farther away. And in a lot of ways, this is analogous to life. And the story of Genesis highlights this for us in these first number of chapters. Life is a life in which there are parallel tracks, and these tracks take you in opposite directions. Faith and obedience to God leads you in a relationship that is close to him. And disobedience and rebellion against God, a lack of faith, leads you further and further away from his track of blessing. We see that in Genesis chapter 4, and it makes this point very clearly to us as we go to a well-known story of Cain and Abel. So I want to ask you to open the Bible with me. Turn to Genesis chapter 4. It's found on page 3 of the Pew Bible in front of you. And listen as we continue this series that we're calling Beyond Repair. It starts this way. Verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, 
And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is now crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and to Irad, Mahujael. And to Mahujael fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adda, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Adda bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And his sister, the sister of Tubal-Cain, was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Adda and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Cain, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 4 makes the point very clearly. 
we notice in this tragic story the snowball effect of sin. We often ask what the main character of any given story is, and there is a main character in this story, and the main character is sin itself as we see what happens in rebellion to God. Look with me as this progression takes place. We see at the beginning of the story that half-hearted worship from Cain turns toward anger, anger toward God's approved ones. Cain and Abel both bring an offering to God. Cain brings his offering, which is fruit of the land. It says Abel brings his offering, which is the firstborn and the fatty portions of his flock. And the text says that God gave regard to Abel and to his offering. But to Cain, he gave no regard. We don't really know why, but we can surmise why. The text doesn't say, some people say, well, it's because Abel's offering was a blood sacrifice and Cain's wasn't. But we don't really know what kind of sacrifice this is. I think more likely, the reason why God chose Abel's sacrifice as pleasurable is because Abel came to God in faith with a whole heart of worship. And Cain came with a half-hearted act of worship to him. This bears itself out in what happens next. Cain's anger about the sacrifice put him in a bad place. And this was truly one of those moments where he stood before God and God said, that wasn't sufficient. And he could have said, all right, God, what do I do next? I came up short here. I made a mistake. Help me understand what is next for me. God tells him as much in verse 7. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But Cain doesn't take God's instructions. Instead, he appears angry, but he's not angry with himself. He's angry toward God, and then he goes and takes his anger out on the one that God approves of, namely his brother. He lures him into a field, he raises up against him, and he kills him. His half-hearted worship turns to anger against God's approved one. Now, this type of behavior isn't exactly logical to us, but we know that this is something we experience all the time. It's something we witness all the time, isn't it? This is what happens when my three-year-old blames my (laughs) four-year-old for something that she's done. This is what happens when the middle school kids who haven't done their homework make fun of the smart kid who has done his homework. He deserves no shame, and yet they try to inflict it upon him because they have come up short. This is what happens to adults when the lazy employee looks upon his fellow employee who's been working very hard and holds him in contempt for the promotion that he just received. And this dynamic is exacerbated even more so in a world today in which the world, who many of which are against God and his ways, look toward God's people with disdain as his hand is upon them and he blesses them in certain ways as they try to follow him. This is just the beginning, however, because the snowball effect of sin 
for Cain is going to get bigger. And we see that as not only half-hearted worship turns toward anger, but half-hearted following of God disregards the warning that God gives against sin. So Cain's upset, and God gives him the opportunity to make it right. But not only did he give him the opportunity to make it right, he warns him about the dynamic that he is now entering. This is what he says. Grab your Bible and look with me. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. The opportunity is ever before us to make a sinful choice. And the picture that God gives to Cain is supposed to make him afraid. The picture that God gives to us is supposed to make us afraid. It's the picture of sin personified as a beast. A beast that is crouching and waiting for its small opportunity to pounce upon you. It doesn't want to play. It wants to devour. Every so often you hear a story of a mountain lion attack here in the United States. One such story happened just a few years ago in the summer of 2014 when 40-year-old Kyra Kopenstansky was hiking by herself near Telluride, Colorado. And as she was into her hike, she noticed that a mountain lion had been stalking her. And as she continued, the stalking continued. 20 even 30 minutes, when she came to a point where she realized she had to do something. And so she turned to confront the beast that was paralleling her along the hiking trail. And as she stood up tall against it and grabbed a big stick, the mountain lion froze. But as she began to back away, the large cat would then approach until she stopped again. And so slowly and surely... Over the course of the next number of minutes, she began to back her way down the mountain. And every time she backed up, the cat would approach. And every time she stood tall, the cat would freeze. Until, after this dance happened for quite a while, it seemed like the mountain lion lost interest. He wandered away into the woods. Three to four minutes later, she heard a crackling in the forest. And she realized that the mountain lion had taken a new position, trying to flank her, again, just looking for any opportunity to pounce. At its most dangerous moment, the lion was only about eight feet away from Kyra. And she stood tall and froze. And she did the only thing that she could think to do. She started to sing opera. Well, surely the mountain lion did not know what to do with that. His ears lowered, he looked confused, and he began backing away. And over the next number of minutes, Kyra finally began to back her way down the mountain, keeping one eye on the cat the whole time until she was met at the trailhead by a local sheriff and brought to safety. Now, this story is illustrious on many levels 
isn't it? I mean, in one sense, it is really nice to know that opera singing is not only offensive to the human ear, <laughs> but it's also quite offensive to some animals. But in a more serious way, this is the picture that God gives of sin. It's stalking, it's prowling, it's waiting to pounce. You might remember 1 Peter 5.8, we talked about it just a few weeks ago. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. There's a sense in which sin is lurking in many places in your life, in your human experience. And it's just looking for that moment that you lower your guard, that you embrace it. And when it finds that moment, it will pounce upon you. Yet, standing tall, acting rightly, will not give sin such an opportunity. The warning here is this. The warning is that when you take your worship of God casually, this is an indication that you also take sin casually. Did you hear that? When you take your worship of God casually, it's an indication that you probably also take sin too casually. Cain didn't rightly see God for who he was, and so he approached him casually in his sacrifice. And this led him then to disregard the warning that God gave him when he failed. How do you approach your worship of God, whether that's daily or even here on Sunday, that is an indicator of how you approach sin. Because I don't know about you, I look at my own life, and I kn certainly the lives of many that I know, and it's so easy to take sin too casually, isn't it? We say things like, it's not that big of a deal. We say things like, well, I'm just, I can keep it in control. We say things like, I'm just going to take a couple steps down this path, but it's not really going to become a part of my life. I mean, after all, I just want to have a little fun. But what we learn in this story is that when you embrace sin in this way, you cannot control the outcome. And it will lead you to places that you never thought you would go. The power of sin is more destructive and you can imagine. And we see that as we continue to go through the story because we see that Cain embraces sin and that spirals him toward rebellion. Look at it with me. Some stories are centered around the events that happen in the story, but this story is centered around the interaction between Cain and between God himself. We see that in this interaction, God is shown as one who is steady, and he's gracious in his approach. Yet Cain is one who has a growing sense of pride and self-importance. It was prideful for Cain to respond to God in anger. And now, after he made a mistake, a significant mistake on top of his mistake, he responds to God in pride once again after he kills his brother. God comes to him graciously, much like he came to Adam earlier in Genesis, saying to Adam, Adam, where are you? 
as they were hiding because of their sin. And now God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, where is your brother, Abel? And the response is, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The compounded sins now reveal the heart. And the heart is full of pride. That's why the Bible warns us so clearly against a prideful disposition. If you are here today and you know that pride is a sinful struggle of yours, listen closely. Don't think about anybody else but yourself in this moment as you hear just a couple of the warnings. Proverbs chapter 11, 2 says, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 29, 23 says, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. James 4, 6, But he, being God, gives us more grace, and that's why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives favor to the humble. In Isaiah 47.10, the prophet speaks and he gives a description of what it looks like to be enraptured in pride and sin. He says it this way. He says, you felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am. And there is no one besides me. The power of sin is more destructive than you can imagine. And the warning for us is that if you have a prideful disposition in this life, then this destruction is nearer to you than maybe you even realize at the moment. I mean, just think about how this spiraled out of control for Cain. It went from bad to worse in a hurry. It started with an improper sacrifice, a half-hearted response of worship. He then responds in anger to God, and he's got a choice. He can do what is pleasing to God, but instead he chooses to be angry toward God, and in jealousy he kills his brother. God confronts him, and the response to God now is belligerent rebellion. This was a God that he was just trying to worship just a day before. And now he's already gone to outward rebellion. God renders judgment on him, and he still doesn't repent. But he worries merely about self-preservation. And God shows grace in that he protects him in the general sense. We call this common grace. But he removes him from his presence and from his blessing. It all started with just an act of half-hearted worship. Not that big of a deal but it ended up in a place where he couldn't imagine. And that is the power of sin. Let me tell you a little story about what this looks like in real life. And we might summarize the story by saying the power of pride and the power of sin makes us really good at believing our own junk. People become really good at convincing themselves that they're right. They become really good then at rewriting the history of events in their mind. And then they become really good at believing that history to be true. 
couple years ago, I was talking to a man who had decided that he was going to divorce his wife. And he expressed things to me like, I just don't think it's working anymore. And there are things that I want to do with the rest of my life that she's standing in the way of. And it's too hard to go on. And as he took another step and another step and another step down his sinful path, he continued to walk further, but the tone changed as he began to rewrite history in his mind. Now, instead of saying it's not working anymore, he was saying things like, it's been a terrible marriage for 30 years. And instead of saying, it's just too hard, he'd say things like, she is just a mean and nasty person, and it's been that way for a long time. And on and on and on. Now, despite being challenged by people around him who loved the Lord, people who some lovingly and some sternly encouraged him to go back to his wife, to change his mind, to repent from his sin, the rewriting in his mind continued to occur. Now he would say things like, we haven't been intimate for 25 years, which wasn't true. Or, I've sought counseling, but she wouldn't go, which wasn't true. And even convinced himself that his wife had an affair early in their marriage, despite the fact there was no evidence to support the claim, and these issues weren't present in their early married life. Sin had taken its hold. The rewriting of history in his mind was as a result of his pride, and now he was actually believing it to the point where he would tell other people rather plainly what he thought happened. The point is this. We are really good at believing our own junk. And when we justify our sin, when we begin to normalize our behavior, when we begin to say, well, my situation is, is, is unique and anyone in my situation would do the same thing, it puts us in a position of being confronted by God. And in that moment of confrontation, in that moment of temptation, we have an opportunity to repent, to turn back to him. But if we don't, when we pridefully believe that our behavior is normal, that our ways are better than God's ways, and we again place ourselves in the position of victim, when sinful choices become normalized, it leads us down the path of making even worse sinful decisions. So much so that the ones around you don't even begin to recognize you anymore as the person that they knew. Logic and accurate history in your mind is defied as we convince ourselves that we're right. Our actions continue to degrade and we become more and more brash against God himself. What started out as honest marriage struggles when met with sin created a completely different man than just a couple years before. Because the power of sin is more destructive than you can imagine. And we see that as this snowball continues to roll down the hill, as this train continues to go farther down the track away from God, 
that a sinful life snowballs into a sinful family, which snowballs into a sinful culture. Look with me at verses 17 and on. Here we see a little account of Cain's lineage, his family following his banishment from God. And we see that in this family he has children, and these children become the masters of culture. One makes tents and keeps cattle. The other one is a musician. One becomes an iron and bronze worker. But the point of this story is the person of Lamech. Lamech is the one who is so enraptured in sin or the culture around him or the family dynamic that started out as just a small misstep in worship is now so plain to them that Lamech decides that he is going to rewrite God's ordinances. And instead of taking one wife, he takes two. Verse 19. And then in verses 23 and 24, he rejoices in killing of the youth. And this is the point of telling us about Lamech. It's found in this little taunt song that he sings. Look at it with me. Verse 23 says, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Sin has progressed rapidly now. Where Cain had fallen prey to it, Lamech now revels in it. Where Cain sought protection from God, As a result of his sin, Lamech now looks for provocation to sin even more. Where Cain killed in jealous anger, Lamech killed a boy for nothing, for a minor strike. Cain's entire family serves as the picture of how sin progresses with incredible vigor and impressive prowess as it takes hold in all of humanity. Sin has taken its hold. It started out as a half-hearted act of worship. It turned into individual sin. It progressed to personal and explicit rebellion. And now it has taken hold in a family, in a nation, and in a culture. As God's ways are rewritten, and as what was once horrible becomes commonplace. And friends, my plea to you is this. No matter what sin you are struggling with right now, whatever that one or two or number of sins that are continually waiting for you, your sin is not worth this. It's not worth this destruction. Your sin or that momentary pleasure is not worth the result because as much as you think that you can control it, once you've embraced sin, you cannot control it. It will not be controlled by you. In fact, it might even control you. What started out as something seemingly minor has now spiraled into a place that they could have never imagined. And that is the nature of sin. It's crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. 
but you must rule over it. And if sin has taken hold in humanity, but God says still that you must rule over it, then the question is, well, how can I do that? And that's where we see some hope in this story. Because at the end of this story, the terrible story of chapter 4, when you look at verses 25 and 26, this is what you see. You see that Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, he also bore a son, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. How do you master sin? You call upon the name of the Lord. There's another narrative to be written here, and that's the narrative of those who would say, I want to call on the name of the Lord. I mean, sometimes we learn through explicit or positive examples of what to do, and sometimes we learn through negative examples. By showing what we shouldn't do, we learn what we should do, and that is certainly the case here. How do you master sin? You call upon the name of the Lord. Cain was proud, but calling on the name of the Lord indicates humility. God gives grace to the humble. And this humility says, God, I want to do things your way in my life. And I can't do it on my own, and I need you to help me. How do you call, or how do you master sin? You call upon the name of the Lord. Cain lacked faith. But calling on the name of the Lord is an expression of faith. It says, God, I believe you. I believe you when you tell me that something is good for me. And I believe you when you tell me that something is bad for me, even when I don't feel like it, even when my emotions tell me otherwise, not out of uh, some misguided or misplaced thing, but I believe you because of who you are. Even when I'm angry, even when I'm hurt, even when I'm depressed, even when I'm tempted, I believe that what you tell me is true. And I'm going to trust what you tell me over my emotions or over my instinct or over even that gut feeling, which is sometimes really good and sometimes just indigestion. I'm not going to trust myself. I'm going to trust your word. How do you master sin? You call upon the name of the Lord. Cain lacked obedience. But calling on the name of the Lord expresses a desire to obey. It says, God, I will look carefully at my life. I will look carefully at my words. I will keep watch over my conduct, not because I believe in some sort of legalism or moralism, but I will keep watch over these things because of who you are. Because you are a great and mighty God and you're worthy to be praised. Because you're good and you're kind and you're just and you're true. Because you're exceedingly generous to me even though I don't deserve it. And I know, God, I know that you are not a God that will be taken lightly or casually or be taken as an afterthought. I know that you're severe in your being. And I want your very best for my life. And so I will call upon you and I will obey you. How do you master sin? Well, you call upon the name of the Lord. And the next question becomes, when you call upon him, what will you say to him? 
you will say, God, your will be done in my life. And may you determine your will to happen even among my day today. How do you master sin? You call upon the name of the Lord. Cain lacked trust in God's provision. But calling on the name of the Lord indicates that his provision is enough for you. And we know that his provision for sin specifically is found in his son Jesus, don't we? We see it again and again that God promises to provide forgiveness through this way. And so it's not surprising that after Jesus came to the earth and after he ascended into heaven again, the disciples go out and Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to the masses. And in his sermon, he quotes Joel chapter 2, which happens to have this little line. What happens to those who call upon the name of the Lord? All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he goes on to show them how this Jesus that they crucified was the perfect son of God. This Jesus that they crucified came as God's provision. How he died a gruesome death. How he rose again from the dead conquering this sin. He came so that we could be saved. The power of sin is destructive. But God's power in Jesus is greater. How do you master sin? You don't wait until you've embraced it. Then it's out of control. You master sin as it's crouching at your doorstep by calling upon the name of the Lord. And we call upon the name of the Lord because we know who he is. Because we take him seriously because we trust him, because we want to obey him, because we have faith in him. I don't know where you're at today with the sin that you struggle with or with your conceptions of God or who he is or how you should approach him. But my encouragement to you and both the warning of this text and the encouragement that it lends is take your worship of God seriously and take the sin that crouches at the door seriously. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for your forgiveness for so often approaching you all too casually. You're a gracious and loving God and you tolerate much And we pray, Lord, that we would see you ever more clearly for who you are. And as we do, Lord, that we would not dabble in sin so casually. That we would recognize its prowess and its power. But we thank you, God, for when we have failed, you have not failed. Where sin's power is strong, your power through the person of Jesus is even stronger. And we thank you for redeeming us unworthy people that we are and for loving us and we call upon your name and we ask God that you would continue to create in us a pure heart that we would trust your will and your ways that we would be humble before you and that you would continue to mold and shape us we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus Amen